Hey everyone, you're listening to the Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined as always with a Rhone Valley, Northern Rhone background on his screen, our specialist wine, Billy Galenko. Hey Brady, how's it going? Yeah, I'm trying Trying to get in the mood, you know, just a little bit of inspiration as a background. You are senior wine specialist, not specialist of wine. I guess that's a certification, isn't it? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. We we kind of just make up our titles here at Vint. So uh, when Adam <laughs> came on, that's what I put. So yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, ha- we have a little bit of a wine episode today. I know we've been kind of digging into the weeds on different wine related topics recently, and we'll soon pivot to more like industry and market stuff over the next upcoming episodes, but we're excited to have Brent Kroll on the podcast as a guest towards the end today. Brent is the proprietor and sommelier at now three really special projects in Washington, D.C., Maxwell Park, which has two locations, and then a new kind of bubbly sparkling and cider and basically anything with fizz concept called pop. So it's awesome to have him on and talk a little bit about trends that he's seeing in the wine consumer and the restaurant market. Also his journey into becoming a sommelier and what that was like. It was just a great conversation and a lot of good perspectives on wine and the wine industry and the people who drive those markets forward. So stay tuned for that at the end of the episode. But we just as we were recording with Brent, our Cheval Blanc 100 point collection sold out. That was a $57,000 total collection value, which we just launched today. This is Wednesday, July 27th that we're recording. So by the time this podcast releases, that will have been a collection that launched and sold out a week ago within four hours. So that's awesome that we were able to sell out that collection again. It's an awesome collection from St. Emilion, super desirable, high-end wines, perfect for any portfolio. So Congrats to everyone who got involved. Yeah. So that that was that was exciting. And luckily for everybody else, we still have uh Bordeaux Magnum's collection that's open uh, that also has more Cheval Blanc and some other things. But also on the on the collection note, we have a bunch of new filings and we have a bunch of new collections that by the time of this listening will be SEC qualified. So let's dive in, Brady, and talk about get people a little excited about what's coming up. Yeah, I think these next collections are, it will be really hard hard to miss on any of these investments in terms of deciding where to allocate funds on the Vint platform. We have multiple collections featuring high-end Burgundy and Bordeaux, including multiple collections featuring DRC, including a DRC mix pack, collections featuring top names like Petrus and Le Pen. Yeah, I think there's something for everyone here. And then we'll be super excited this August to release our Bordeaux Empremeur 2021, right? Bordeaux wines from this last kind of futures season. So every year we're going to be offering Bordeaux futures on the Vint platform. And so, yeah, it's going to be exciting. It's a, it's a cornerstone for any wine and spirits investment portfolio. If you're invested in anything in wine and spirits, Bordeaux is Bordeaux futures is probably number one or two up there and what should be included in your portfolio. So we are eager to get that collection out to everyone. Yeah. And we'll do a special se- session and have some some more materials on why on promoter should be a part of everybody's portfolio alongside of traditionally, you know, bottled or back vintage Bordeaux and other regions as well. But Brady did a great job of 
kind of teeing up the wines there, but we also have a number of great whiskey selections coming up as well. We have our first Irish whiskey collection launching soon, which will actually be the, the first collection to launch after this one that just sold out today, the Shovel Blanc. So stay tuned there. And then we also have, again, a couple more Scotch and Japanese whiskey collections. So overall, there's over a million dollars of new collections coming your guys' way, and they're going to be really exciting. This is one of the the most exciting, I guess, batches of wines and whiskeys to put together since I've been at Vint. We basically have more in this filing, almost, I think, than we did all of the first six months of Vint's you know, existence from May to December last year. So we're growing quickly, and it's great to have everybody along for the rides. But since we're growing, that also means we can offer more exciting stuff more often to our community. So it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah, and, and beyond offering new collections, we also plan to release some more education and insights and information around how to think about new collections that come onto the Vint platform and where they might fit into your existing portfolio. As a team, we're currently working on some frameworks and, like I said, education and putting together data and aggregating everything together so that investors feel like they have more information on how to make the right decisions for their particular goals and risk profile when you're adding collections to your event portfolio. I know it can sometimes be overwhelming to you know, have one or two collections being launched on the platform every week and difficult to discern which collection to get into. Um, we've talked in the past how some investors just buy into every collection, but for other investors, maybe would like to be a little bit more intentional and discerning about which offerings um, you put money into. So we want to provide as many resources as we can to help you make those decisions for yourself. So stay tuned for some of that information as we start to release it over the coming weeks. And as always, reach out to Billy or I if you have any questions about our event platform or about the collections coming live on the site. But like I said, yeah. we're excited to have Brent on the podcast. So we'll get right into that interview in, in just a second. Billy? Um, yeah. My last little piece there is going to be that that information will be living in the the Vint blog on the site. If you guys haven't haven't checked it out, as we've updated the, the look and feel of the site, the blog is now available. So we'll have these materials on portfolio building, but we're also going to have more on how supply and demand affects the uh, collectible wine market and things like deep dives on provenance and storage. So we have a lot of lot of information coming up soon that'll help you guys inform your wine wine investment decisions, but also to give you better understanding about how we how we select the collections that we do. That's great. Well, Billy, I hope you have a great day. We'll leave our investors or listeners with Brent Kroll from Maxwell Park and Pop in DC. Hey, Brent, great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for, thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we want to give our listeners a wide view of the wine industry, both restaurateurs and producers and collectors and all over the map. And so we're excited to have you here someone is a sommelier and certainly prominent in the dc restaurant and bar space right now and you know really glad to have you talk about some of your projects and maybe we can talk about your background and kind of how you got to where you're at now and what it is you're working on recently yeah i would say background for when it started i was a business administration student and i always thought that like the best thing to do to set myself up well was to get like an mba I got some grants in college and I had a few years paid for and I wasn't really sure I liked it or it was what I wanted to do. So I was working at waiting tables on the side and I've been working in restaurants as like a busser since I was like 14. I tried to get a job at the nicest place I could because I really just wanted to learn about like nice food and nice wine. So 
I got hired at this white tablecloth place called a Coach Insignia when I was under 21. And it was pretty cool. I started really taking an interest to wine. They would let me come to the blind tastings at a lineup, but I wasn't allowed to taste. I was only allowed to smell. So I thought that was really interesting. I also remember I was like trying to get waiters to like, hey, can you like buy me some wine? Like hush, hush. So I could try this and know what I'm talking about. And I was like, instead of like trying to score like beer or like, you know, like pucker or hard lemonade, I was trying to like try like Northern Run Syrah and I was trying to try like Zeno Mabro and I just like had to know about it. It came a point where I was getting this really bad section in the restaurant every day. I was the section by the bathrooms. And I remember I kept, you know, all my shifts, I was like racing guests to the bathroom to hold open the bathroom door. And I was just kind of like in the tables that were closest to there and trying to be like really friendly and courteous. So at some point, being very kind of nervous, I, I worked up the courage to talk to the general manager of the restaurant. And I said, hey, I noticed that I keep getting this section and it's one of the lesser sections that you can give someone. I feel like I'm doing pretty well, but like, is there any way that I can just rotate this with other people or get out of the section once in a while? And he kind of looked at me and he said, listen, we, we like you, you're doing great, but you're a beverage liability. People who come in with reservations typically know more about wine and we have kind of tracking on them. And people who are walk-ins typically are not the most wine savvy people and they don't have the better reserved tables. So we're counting on you to kind of blow away walk-ins, but beverage wise, we just, you're too much of a liability to put you in a better section. So it kind of lit like a fire. Like when you're called a liability for something that you're kind of interested in, it's it definitely kind of like reworks your mind. So I, I read the, the wine Bible by Karen McNeil's one of my first books and then sales and service for the wine professional by Brian Julian, I remember, which was super dry. I remember reading that book with a highlighter, and I think I was highlighting more words than were unhighlighted. I mean, it was definitely a tough one, making a bunch of flashcards and stuff too. But eventually, they they started getting me out of that section, and I, I signed up for my intro sommelier course when I was 20 years old, and I took it month of, month of my 21st birthday. I got certified through the quartermaster sommeliers when I was 22. And then once I had that, I had my foot in the door to get good jobs, which is what I cared about more than certifications necessarily. So I would say I just kind of used that to build a career off of, but I had to get those certifications in order to open doors for me. So once I got those certifications, I opened a, a restaurant for, for Michael Mina in Detroit called Saltwater. And I was too far down the totem pole to like get to be a sommelier as fast as I wanted to. I wanted to be a seller some, assistant some, just something in wine. And there just wasn't enough movement. So they transferred me to Miami, bourbon steak, and there still wasn't a ton of movement. And then I found a job as a sommelier in Miami. So I ended up leaving Michael Meaden and I went to this place called Casa Tua. This was where I got like my sommelier boot camp. You know, there's those like memes or gifts where it's like what your friends think you do, what your neighbors think you do or whatever, like whatever yeah. anyone thought of being a sommelier was. I was doing requisitions from a warehouse in the morning. I was showing up and printing menus every day. I was doing a staff lineup and I was working till the end of service. I was probably doing like 80 to 90 hours a week. And in Miami, it's so beautiful. It's just like kind of like a little like gut wrenching when you have no time to do anything there, but then there's gorgeous days all the time. So I, I did that for about a year and wasn't able to save really any money living in Miami. And I was looking for a job elsewhere. I was working under a really good sommelier at the time named George Hawk. And I remember I was really disappointed. He actually got fired because he was supposed to show up for the, the owner's birthday or his kid's birthday with wine. And he slept in and they fired him. And they, they told me that I was in charge of the program. And it's like a $3 million a year wine program. I'm 22 at the time. 
And I'm like, well, me and who else? And they're like, just you. And I, 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 <laughs> I was like, if I keep doing this, they're just going to keep letting me do this until I, until I quit or stop. They're just like, you know, I'm just such a, a value because I'm like young and will take like whatever pay they offer me. But I wasn't getting like a lot of like mentorship or I wasn't having anyone really like teaching me. And that's what I needed more at that point in my career. So th- there is a value to working with people that you're going to like, you know, learn what you want to do and what you don't want to do and stuff like that. So I was applying all over the country. I got some job offers in, in California. I remember Gary Danko offered to let me be a, a floor sommelier. The French Laundry offered to let me start as a food runner before being a sommelier. And I had an offer in Chicago and then I had an offer in D.C., the offer in DC was the only offer that was willing to pay for my relocation, which was really important. Never really having money throughout my whole wine journey, like really no background in wine in regards to my family or really any family backing. So I took the job in DC and it was a older restaurant, but he gave me complete autonomy to start like writing a wine program for a wine bar called Bardeo at the time that no longer exists. And I remember my first month there, there was an article that came out in like the local magazine called the Washingtonian and it ranked all the wine bars in Washington, DC. And the wine bar that I just started at was ranked the lowest wine bar in the entire city. So I got to have a low bar set, which that cuts like both ways. You know, you want to be at a great place, but if a place that you're starting at is ranked so low, if you have drive, you have nowhere to go, but up. If you're taking over to a place and you're just like playing cover tunes and that place is already great, I think it's like way different of a challenge. And I think people younger in their careers should take, you know, tougher challenges. So I did that for about a couple of years and I was starting to do really popular like wine tastings. And I started to get like a little bit of a following there for like some of the selections at the time. This was like a special area in DC where you had like a lot of famous importers like dragging around bags and coming to visit you. This was when like... Bobby Catcher was going around and tasting people. You had Danny Haas from Vineyard Brands. Even Terry Thies at the time lived in D.C. and was dragging around a bag, begging people to drink Riesling. And like no one really given the time of day that much. This was like that era in like around 2008. So it's it's crazy to like realize like you don't know at the time all the talents and all the people that are around there and stuff. So I ended up getting a job from that Ardeo Bardeo bar that was ranked pretty poorly. And I, I think when I left, I was really happy with what I did. I went to this restaurant called the Oval Room by the White House. And I remember my boss told me, this was almost like my my talk back when I was trying to get into wine and I was told I was a liability. He's like, I'm going to switch you to this nicer restaurant called the Oval Room. We have a chef there who came from John George in New York. He's a little hard to work with. And if he doesn't like you, we're going to fire you. Like He's like, do you want to take the transfer? And I was like, yeah, I'll take the transfer. I mean, whatever happens, happens. And I went there and I worked with this chef and he was one of the most dedicated, passionate chefs I'd ever seen. He was super detail oriented. And it really made me want to think about how I viewed little details and how I viewed kind of service. I feel like if we left a coffee machine in the kitchen, like dirty, if we didn't hold the plate at the right angle or the right way, it was always just like everything had or had a reason. And it was like, I was getting able, I was being able to be like a part of that. So I thought that job was like super, super important too. After that, I wanted to see if I could take a job where it was maybe more like responsibility and a bigger role. So I started talking with the St. Regis in Alain Ducasse and they actually hired me at a 26 years old with like two assistant sommeliers to run the beverage for a St. Regis and an Alain Ducasse restaurant called Adour. And that was like a big break for me. I was like kind of in like, it felt almost like imposter syndrome. I'm like, how am I, uh, how am I in this, in this role with like 
people more experienced and older than me, like working under me and like kind of running hotel beverage. But it was really kind of a weird interview process. In the interview process, they didn't ask me a single wine question. I was like ready to talk about anything they wanted to talk about. Like they were asking me personality questions. They were asking me like, what's your favorite wine? Which is kind of like a baited question to me. Like if you say it's like, you know, some like 1928, like Ted's Cuvée Champagne, they're going to be like, okay, this guy sucks. He's not really fun. If you say like, what I told them actually is like, well, it depends if I'm like drinking with you, if I'm drinking with my mother, if I'm drinking like with a friend. I said, you know, wine's enjoyed based on like the company you have. So the sense of place you create through sharing wine with people makes a favorite wine kind of variable. And they said, that's a good answer. So I think that's what really kind of got me in that job because I also asked them afterwards, I was like, why didn't you ask me anything about wine? Like you have no idea if I have any read anything about wine. And they said, basically, if you have a seat with us for this interview, the wine's not what we're concerned about. So I thought, thought that was very interesting. That was like a, you know, a very high pedigree chef and company like interviewing me. And it was unlike any other interviews I'd ever had. So I worked for them for a few years and I think we got new owners of the hotel and I felt like the door by Lan Ducasse was going to probably not exist anymore because you look at some of these hotel deals, whether it's like Joel Rubichon, you know, John George, Lan Ducasse, so whatever celebrity chef, if the hotel wants to stop their contract with paying a chef like a monthly retainer to have their concept there, it's just going to stop. So there were new owners of the hotel in New York and DC and New York had parted with Ducasse. So I figured it was coming in DC. There was one restaurant group that was about 10 restaurants called a neighborhood restaurant group. And they hired me to take over all their wine programs. And I was helping them with like P&Ls and inventory. I, I would work on cocktail projects, just anything they needed. I was just kind of like trying to be a Swiss army knife for them. And they pretty much doubled their company, went from around 10 to around 20 concepts. So I was just opening place after place after place with them. And eventually what I told them, this, this is really hard too, is the difference between me being like a three-year employee and like a 10 plus year employee is if we can eventually open a concept together where I'm like an owner. And I, I realized after some time with them that they, they weren't going to allow that to happen with me being the majority owner of a concept that I could come up with. So I took a really big risk and I raised like one share at a time. I wrote my own business plan. I wrote my own performa, my own P&L. And I met with investors and I was selling 1% here, 2% here. I'm talking like my real estate agent, like old roommate, so many people that just like came out of the woodwork and they were like, you know what, we're going to invest with you. So I, I opened my first bar and it, it blew my expectations. We had no PR, no marketing. We're buying some of our furniture from Target. I mean, it was just kind of like all pure passion and doing good with wine and making people feel comfortable and good. And we got like wine enthusiasts, uh, got an award from them. We got Esquire top bar in the country. I got food and wine sommelier of the year. This is all just like me serving and waiting in bartending and waiting tables and like, you know, a bar that's meant to be, you know, t-shirts and, you know, just not very fancy, like loud music, just not the type of like pristine, quiet, like stuffy wine atmosphere that you would think of. And I, what I thought is like, what's a bar that I want to go to and drink? And it's a bar where there's different wines every single month where temperature is a, is a big factor. So we have five different temperature zones. We have proper glassware. And I just felt like so many bars were kind of getting in their own way with being like, oh, well, we're, we're the French bar or the Spanish bar, or we're going to serve everything in this one like nice looking rocks glass, or we're going to serve everything in a stemless glass. We're going to serve everything in a giant Bordeaux glass. And it was just kind of like... I don't. I never understood why places would like kind of like pigeonhole themselves and have like a limited scope for like bars and like what they wanted their concept to be. 
I just thought, why not blow it up every month and try to keep things fresh and interesting? So we got a ton of press and a bunch of good awards and we, you know, we've been doing really well. And I guess from being a 14 year old busboy to being called a liability as a waiter to now being about to open my third bar, that's my journey. Wow. That's awesome. Quite an impressive journey. Yeah. What, what would have happened? I mean, obviously hypotheticals are hypotheticals, but you know, you had the opportunity to wait tables at the French laundry. Do you get to Maxwell park? If you had went that direction, uh, like, cause it sounds like you're like, Oh, well, this isn't stuffy. I mean, the French laundry per se, like, isn't that stuffy French dining? Like, so do, do you go that direction <laughs> if you ended up taking that French laundry job? I, I don't think so. I think it had to be as hard as possible for me to go in this like route. I think maybe if I didn't have to push myself this hard, or if I didn't have to like turn around like a the worst ranked wine bar in Washington DC at the time, if I didn't have to like grind it out for you know different employers. I had like that first sommelier job where I saw how hard it could possibly be. I don't think I would have been motivated to to really do it honestly. I, I think. If I went out there, I still kept the letter from the from the French laundry when they gave me my job offer because I thought it was like you know pretty cool. But no, I I really I think I would honestly probably be like a, a wine director somewhere in New York or San Francisco, and I never would have got to do this. And I'm so grateful that I actually like figured it out somehow. I posted on my social media too that if anyone wants to know how to do a performa, a business plan, if anyone wants any advice, I'm a totally pay it forward person. I had so many employers who were not willing to do that for me. And I just think mm. that that's kind of an issue in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was I was also thinking while you were telling your story. So I, I, I kind of went a different route into my wine world. And I ended up doing the intro and certified while working in advertising when I was in New York. And it was always annoying for me because after I passed, all my friends would be like, oh, he's a sommelier. And I would try to explain to them the difference between being a sommelier and just passing the exams and like, your story is the epitome of like what a lot of people go through and actually do working the floor for so long. So it's it's nice to now I have something to like to point to and I can just be like just check out you know Brent Kroll's background if you want to see what a true sommelier is you know actually. So I think that's really that's really interesting. I try to tell people that I worked my way out of a suit like into and then out of a suit because <laughs> I'm come to my bar where I'm the owner. I'm waiting tables and not telling people I'm the owner. Like you would experience me basically as your server or bartender if you didn't know the difference. And that that's basically how I operate now. And that's like because of the social awesome. payment service. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Now maybe, maybe I had I, I've been there once. I'm based in LA. The last time we were there, I, I made sure to stop by Maxwell Park and had a among other things in 1968 Madeira. I can't remember the varietal. I think it was Cersei All. But uh, I love the setup. We have another teammate who's based there who goes regularly. So we'll have to have him keep a lookout as well. Taking a, a little step back, so, or not a step back, kind of forward, thinking more about the wine business side of things. Since you've been able to work through many different concepts and with different importers and, and different steps, I guess now owning your, your own wine bar, you have to get licensed. Are there difficulties or can you talk to some of the difficulties of getting like the wines that you want in the United States? Like, Sure, there's a whole world of amazing wines, but if they're not imported here or they're only imported in small allocations, how, how do you how do you navigate those waters to get cool stuff all the time? It, it's interesting. It's ever changing. I'd say it's completely different from like earlier on in my career. So I would say like earlier in my career, if you found like kind of rare wines or all these wines that are hard to get now, they were like readily or like fairly easy to get. I'd say that like now, I think Jancis Robinson was one who touched on this. 
a lot of wine lists, regardless of concept, are working with great wines and they're putting them on all their lists, whether it's a seafood restaurant, a steakhouse, a, you know, a Indian or Thai restaurant or whatever. They're just all you, you're going to see the same famous producers for the for a lot of the part because a lot of people are playing like a follow the leader type game. I think that what's going to eventually happen is people are going to give up on having to buy like, you know, hundreds of cases to get like a few bottles of Cocherie or a few bottles of DRC and like having to do all these things to get the certain wines they want, finding things that are very good, but maybe they're not as like hosted by famous sommeliers and they're just like not as crazy allocated. I think that's the future of the sommelier with maybe like a couple pit stops and like putting your foot in the water on like, how far this natural wine movement goes because that can kind of fall off the rails and be kind of good in a sense too. But to further answer your question too, DC is one of the best places in the country. So I would say we don't have state law because we're not really a state. So we're just subject to federal law. Federal law typically, I think, is kind of written to leave a lot of beverage laws up to the state, which we're not. So we're in this kind of like amazing Bermuda Triangle of wine law. So I can pretty much reach out to just about any winery in the country, have them shipped to me direct if I want. You can get import licenses really easy in D.C. So there's like a liquor store down the street. They can get simple paperwork and get something imported. And then I can tell them I want to buy it from them and, you know, work with importers and say, hey, you work with this one winery. I know they have like this 20 year old wine in their cellar. Can you bring in a case for me? And they'll like bring it in or something like that. Uh, what stops a lot of that in like New York and in other places is like typically you have to offer it to everyone or offer it to the same price for everyone. In DC, you don't. So if they want to get something and just offer it to me or sell it to me for half the price to someone else, like if you're a savvy buyer and you've been around for a while, you can really dig into your program. Like I think New York has some of the best wine lists in the country, but DC has advantages that New York doesn't have in terms of what we're able to do legally. And I think that sommeliers here are like starting to scratch the surface on that. But you can open you know, a program here and it can can be like world-class like upon opening without having to sell your stuff for years just based on what we're able to do around here yeah that's that's something that i don't think many people really consider that after after prohibition in the u.s the, the laws became kind of so archaic and now it's state by state dealing with different laws along with federal things so that's why you can go somewhere and have a dry county in kentucky and then you can have somewhere like dc that's nice and flexible I, what do you think has happened and I, I, this was down the line a little bit more. I was going to ask you more about people's, how their drinking habits may have changed during the pandemic. But do you think that restaurants as a whole, you know, as to make, to make it buy, they basically had to start selling off some of their cellar or drinking down some of their cellar. Do you think that people are going to try to replenish their cellars now? Or do you think they're kind of going to go with like a newer model? Kind of like you were saying is finding more interesting things because people are open to trying more stuff and only have a little bit of the blue chips compared to what they used to have. That's a really good question. You know, I saw during the pandemic that a lot of these restaurants were just like fire sailing some things that they had taken like years to build. I was listening to some really interesting like podcasts. I think one that was recently on Guild Som too. And they were saying that like basically the entry level wine consumer is getting out of wine, which is kind of the gateway drug to better wine. And they're starting to drink stuff like, you know, seltzers or kombuchas, or they're just avoiding like junk wine and going to like cheap things in other categories where like the higher end wine drinker, the ones that are fighting over like allocated burgundy on short vintages where the prices keep going up. That's a really crowded field right now. So I think that a lot of these restaurants are seeing that like in the COVID time now, 
it's really hard to just like invest a ton of money in your seller because it, there's so much like uncertainty, even though it's getting a little clearer. And I also think that like we're in a little bit of a, a danger zone with these with Gen Z who kind of maybe wants to get their wine news maybe off of like TikTok and isn't getting into entry level wines as much. Not to say that that's you know everyone, but to say that like there's trends showing that that's happening more than with millennials. So that's that's something I'm kind of keeping my eye on. So my new concept is actually like with that very much in mind. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to talking about about pop a little bit bit more as well. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm getting into those ones and co-ferments and ciders myself. But on that note, do you think that the definition of entry level wine may be changing a little bit? Because I, I think you can find great affordable entry level, quote unquote, entry level wines, whether it be like, say, an Albertino or a Muscadet or like a Cava, that's not just like crappy, really sweet, you know, California wine. Do you think people might, Gen Z, if they do try to drink cheaper and have entry level might go that way a little bit more rather than just some of this, the older stuff? Yeah, I definitely think that there's like different ways to go about value. Sometimes people are like, you know, where do I go for the, the best, you know, value? And I would say it's typically regions where they're so basically when you're looking for value what i tell people is like don't go to the diner and order like the bone and ribeye or something like don't try to find your value in like the most like ritzy places in the wine world don't look for like your you know your the cheapest champagne you can find the cheapest napa cab you can find places that have less in terms of like labor and in terms of vineyard price like dollar per hectare or places where there's a lot of like older family estates maybe they've been making wine for a really long time like those are places where you can typically get like the most value so it's like it's completely different if you're making wine in like Argentina versus making wine in like Napa or even like Virginia and DC with what you have to pay people and what vineyard land costs and stuff like that. I think a lot of times, a lot of the entry level wines now are getting into wines where they could be doing like flavoring in the wine. They could be adding a bunch of processed sugar. They could be adding a bunch of like, you know, powdered acid or citric acid. And in the wine world, I really wish they had to tell you if they were doing that stuff, but they don't. You really just have to like trust kind of what they're doing. And some wineries, even really like nice ones in good regions, like correct their wines a little bit. But I, I think that like when people are buying a $3 bottle of wine from California, they need to like be very, very weary. I would say it's almost like when you see the price of the salmon at Ikea, like how, how <laughs> could you the salmon? Like how, how can they make that work? You know? So it's, for me, there's, there is a lot of value in wine, but I, I think that like there's parts of the world that have more value. You should think about kind of a map in your head when you're looking for it. And if something is just like bulk and just says like wine from like the entire state of California or like the entire country of France or something, like I, I just think those, those aren't the best gateway drugs. And they're not pulling in the Gen Z drinkers that much. When Gen Z drinkers come by your and, and, and ask for a drink, are they asking your um, waiters and waitresses, your bartenders, hey, what do you recommend? Are they coming in with an idea of what they want? Or are you hearing things like, you know, I only drink white wines or I don't like wine? Like what kinds of comments have you anecdotally are kind of re recurring from that group? You know, it was interesting. So I'll skip a couple generations or go up a couple generations for point of context. When you had like your, your boomers or your Gen X, they were the types where that's like, hey, I like this one California Chardonnay. You don't have it? What's wrong? Why don't you have this wine? This is such yeah. a good wine, you know, and it's just all that type of stuff. Millennials, not like that. Like, we'll, 
what are you into? What should I try? This is something I like. Gen Z, sometimes they want, they want you to like tell them a weird place or a weird grape they haven't heard of. They want to like find out about the next like it thing, or they want very like really abstract like wines that are kind of like out there and they're not as concerned necessarily about like the classics as much as like, you know, maybe they will be eventually, but I feel like they just want to like, just like go completely like wild into the wine world and find like kind of the weirdest stuff before they like consider like the classics as much, which is, you know, totally fine. I, I kind of tell people like when they're in here, like, Hey, I have this orange wine. It's, it, you know, it tastes like Normandy cider, but it's orange or this, this smells like peach yogurt and green tea. And, you know, I'll make that, that as a descriptor for some of these amber wines that are coming out or something like that. And they're just like super into it where I was kind of trained on like saying classic descriptors that are like very, very pointed. I, I feel like they want more like poetry and they want you to say more like oddball, oddball stuff. And it's, it's kind of, they're like fun conversations. They're like energetic wine drinkers. But I, I think that like wine didn't expect to have maybe a chunk taken out of it by the explosion of all the seltzers and stuff for like the youngest wine drinkers. Billy, you might be Gen Z based on the kind of stuff you like. Yeah, I think Brady, <laughs> Brady's age and my my palates are flopped here. We need to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're a unique concept because we have fifty wines by the glass. So people come here on dates a lot, or they come here for business or whatever. And instead of someone trying to memorize all fifty wines or try to you know pick pick one out or whatever, they're kind of just like, "Hey, this is what I normally like. This menu is a little overwhelming. Like, what do you recommend?" So we kind of have our menu set up where it's a little like heavy enough where it lends itself to like having a conversation and not just being an you know an order taker or something like that like to the epitome of it is like this was our first wine theme we did it was a abpg anything but pinot grigio and sometimes people were thought they were thinking they're like why are you throwing shade at pinot grigio and i was like I actually <laughs> i don't have a problem with pinot grigio i don't have a problem with pinot gris i was like those wines can be amazing the point is when you come in we're going to do an indigenous italian theme this month and if we list a pinot grigio so many people are going to order that and not order the other things they could expand their horizons to. So I think that like, you shouldn't like be anti guest focus, but like sometimes you can like steer the guest into like, you know, trying new things opposed to just going to like old faithful. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think I'm also interested, maybe we'll just pivot over back to the, the orange wine side of things now. Cause I think old wine descriptors don't actually work that well for some of the flavors you're getting in some of these skin contact expressions anyway. So I think it's nice to be able to expand that vocabulary just from a personal nerdy side of things. I saw your, your quote, I think it was in 750 on orange wine and about temperature. And I, I think that's really interesting for people who are just trying to start drinking orange wines. My partner and I, we, we love like she drinks them all the time, but we do always have this kind of discussion of like, she'll say this orange wine's too serious when she means more just like, a Georgian expression or some Slovenian ones like, or Rebula Jala, regardless of where it's from, that tend to be a little bit more tannic, but sometimes they're served at temperatures. Like you were saying that I think are just completely off. Can you, you want to talk a little bit about that for people who's trying to get into orange wine in the first place? Yeah. Temperature affects like texture. And even to dial it back to something we do, if you come into any of my bars and we serve you water, there's never going to be ice in it because what does ice do when it's in your mouth? It numbs your palate. It makes tannin taste terrible. So like you need to think of even about the temperature of the water that you're drinking is important. So when you have orange wine and it's way too cold, it's going to make the tannins like way more harsh, 
way more astringent. It's going to taste totally bitter. If you want like a juicy texture, even if it's not like the Atanic, like Amber styles of Georgia, it's still just not going to have that round juiciness if it's like too cold. Like wines out of the refrigerator, like refrigerator, like house household refrigerator temperature, those are really that's not a good temperature for a lot of wines. So I when I go out and I, I try like you know orange wines here or there at like typically at bars and restaurants, it's really being served like light white wine and ice cold. And I think that you're just like, like seeing the trailer to the movie. Like you're not really getting the the gist of it. You're kind of getting like just a little preview of the wine. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We we did our company retreat in Colorado last week, and I was trying to get the team to taste some Colorado-grown wines, and they made some skin contacts, and they they said they were natural 100%, but some of these wines were so imbalanced between ripeness and acid that I think they might have dumped some tartaric in. But yeah, the two orange wine expressions were not served at proper temperatures, and they were not that great. So I'm just trying to, <laughs> on a mission to let people know that there are a ton of varieties out there styles of wine but also when you're trying it the temperature itself can impact your flavor immensely so to try the same wine again multiple times orange wine's also it's such a hot thing right now that if orange wine isn't made very well or isn't made correctly it's made to make you under like think that you just don't understand the wine or maybe i'm just not getting it or maybe it's like oh i'm gonna say it's good because i don't have a point of reference for if this wine is the way it's supposed to be or something like the orange wines that i don't like the comparison i make is like Let's say you like paid some like hippie to paint your house and he painted like two thirds of your house. And he was like, look at the way the sun hits it today. It's 657. It's so awesome. Like totally cool. And it's like, no, no, dummy finish painting my house. I don't want two thirds of my house painted. I want to finish the job. So some of these, they don't like finish the wines properly. And I'm just like, you can make a natural wine and you can make an orange wine and you can finish it properly. And there's actually natural wines that you can't even like tell they're natural because they taste like, you know, conventional classic wines you're used to. So like Rich, for example, in California, they call themselves pre-industrial. They're like dry farm, natural inoculation and stuff like that. So it's weird as to what people's perception is. People want to judge like wine being natural like they want to judge rosé being sweet on site. Like you can't, it's it's like when you want to start judging in, in crowds, wines, just when you look at it, like, oh, look at that rosé. It must be sweet. Oh, like look at that wine. It's really cloudy. That must be a good natural wine. Like just pump the brakes on, on that stuff. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I just had to finish up a WSET research paper on sustainability and how to get people to drink it more or to understand sustainability better between education and those pieces. Can we talk, let's, I know I, we mentioned it earlier. We'll come back to it now. Pop, can we talk a little bit about your, your concept there? Cause these are a lot of things that I'm going to be, I'm drinking regularly yeah. nowadays. So when I came up with Maxwell, I thought there wasn't like a wine bar like Maxwell that really did this type of rotations and this many temperature zones. And it wasn't like rocket science. It's something that could easily be copied. It was just something I, I didn't see in the wine world with pop. I don't see bars out there doing what I want to do with pop. Pop is meant to be like sparkling sakis, ciders, sparkling kombuchas, champagne, pet knots, beer, just anything carbonated, everything served in kind of like a wider sparkling glass where you can actually get like a nose on it. And it is just meant to kind of encompass what all the new drinkers in the, in the just alcohol consumption field are drinking, but having like really good allocated classic champagne. So it's kind of like an ascension through maybe like, entry drinkers into like people getting really serious about their bubbles but just kind of pop culture references all over kind of like loud fun music and it's a concept 
concept that I would personally like want to hang out at and have a ton of fun if I'm hanging out with like, you know, younger relatives or people that aren't into wine or are into wine. It's just meant to like cast a wide net, which is the whole point I think of like being in hospitality is catching a wide or casting a wide net for like who you get. I was gonna say Brady, I thought he might want to hop in there. He's, he's up by old Westminster, which has a couple of those, yeah. those ones out there in Maryland. Yes. Yeah. I mean the, you know, I was just, I was, while you're talking about pop, I was thinking about, I think probably the first wine that I had was like a champagne on new year's. And I remember just hating it so much, but then I remember, you know, years down the line, just being, you know, you have, it doesn't matter what kind of sparkling it could be, but those wines for me are always the ones that can invoke the most like, wow, I can't believe that like feels like that and tastes like that on the palate. So I think that a concept totally devoted to those kinds of wines and, and sounds like even bringing seltzers and ciders and, and co-ferments maybe is, you know, I think that's really huge. And having it next to Maxwell Park in your portfolio is cool. Like, cause you have the same vibe maybe at both places, but doing two totally different things. And I could see them coexisting together too. For Maxwell, if you have wine collector friends or people that want a serious list or people that just don't know what they want about wine and want to come in and have like a concierge experience, like we're kind of like that. I typically think that like when I find someone and they're in a bad mood or they don't or they seem kind of like maybe borderline rude or something, I just assume that like almost everyone on the planet is having one of the worst years of their life at some point in the last like three years. So I think that like pop is the type of concept that like I feel like the, the world kind of needs where like everything is bubbly. It's meant to be cheers. Everything's coming in like a sparkling glass. And it's just I don't know. It's I feel like it's a hard place to have a bad time. Yeah, I had, a, I had a manager when I worked in special sales who used to tell us he said before we would open up the, the store for the morning he would say imagine that every customer that walks in it's their birthday they drove three <laughs> hours they have six hundred dollars in cash in their pocket just like this idea of like give everyone like the experience that we know everyone should have regardless of what they look like coming in the door or how they're you know how they're presenting so i love these concept restaurants that are like you're going to feel like this at the end of this meal and can accomplish that that's cool yeah yeah it's and like I, with pop it's like shocker you're gonna drink bubbly and cheers at some point like that's like yeah. the minimum <laughs> nice yeah i was I, I think especially out i'm in la during the summertime it's so hot that my friends when they do come over they they know we're gonna try to drink wine but they don't want to get like you know wasted right away just like by pounding a bunch of like you know white wine even that's my goal has always been trying to get these lower abv expressions anyway which i think resonates well with the younger folks looking for a cider so i've tried to like transition people over and it's been really interesting when you and you it's surprising how interested they are in like the processes behind them too kind of when you try to explain what like a piquette is for example or even those co-ferments they're like you're telling me they threw apples and apples and grapes together or you know stuff like that it allows for more storytelling i think yeah stuff like that can can be really cool and really interesting like i actually i've had really good like blueberry wine from Maine called like blue it and just certain things that have been like really I think kind of like fascinating I always fear that like when there's something good just like with people or with anything there's like something bad so I feel like I'm always like rules of thumb and kind of like trying to avoid like blanket statements so I think even with like everything I just mentioned from categories you still have to be like pretty discerning but I think that the breadth of what's available right now for wine is or just alcoholic carbonated beverages or co-ferments what you're talking about is bigger than it's ever been and it's only going to get bigger do you have any any favorite 
producers right now, whether it be on the site or kombucha, any of those friends? For cider, I actually have always loved Eric Bordelais. I, I think he's great. I found out he makes keg cans too, which I would love to just like have a keg can at pop where you could come in and order like a three liter keg can for your table of like, you know, biodynamic Normandy cider from a guy that was mentored by DDA Dagonau. Eve Cider out of New York, I, I'm a big fan of. I really like their stuff. I want to pat it. My fiance is obsessed with June China and I've tried it. June China, I think is a good sparkling <laughs> kombucha. And I'd actually say I have been trying to push myself and trying more seltzers to see like what's what. And I think that like high noon is one of the better ones I've had. So mm. it's funny to like blind taste a lot as a salmi and come across these things. And I'm like tasting different beverages. Like remember I was trying to like taste or like evaluate like a sommelier, like a monster energy drink the other week. I don't even really drink it, but I just wanted to kind of see like, what am I getting out of this? What does it smell like? That It had like this, like if you melted a pile of jelly bellies in the sun or something, and it was just kind of like, like sun baked and old, old smelling kind of, but some of these beverages can just get like so, so weird. So I'm looking forward to basically trying to, you know, hone it into stuff that like where I have a discerning palate for what I pick with like a wine bar like Maxwell, I'll be picking seltzers in the same way. Yeah. Have you had a Waterbird from Charlottesville? No. Yeah, they do like, uh, they're like canned cocktails. I'm trying to think of where I've, yeah, like they have like tequila margaritas and vodka, Moscow mules, different things, but they're just like so clean tasting versus, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, if you had something like that, it would taste like medicine and vodka. But yeah. Uh, yeah, you should check those out. Waterbird, I think they're called. I'm sure they sell in DC somewhere. I'll have to hit you up about that. That's that's really interesting. I've seen some of the breweries around here, like DC Brow. I think was one of DC's first brewery, if not their first brewery. They do like an mm-hmm. orange, an orange seltzer that's pretty good. So we're starting to see like them coming out of different, you know, different entities, not just like giant corporations. Nice. Yeah. There's. We also on the podcast. He was one of our first guests. We've had a. Um, Master Som, David Keck, and he doesn't really care if we mention Master Som because he doesn't mind, but he's now making wine in Vermont and he's like farming these hybrids that like, you know, haven't really been properly taken care of for a long time. He got a vineyard and they're making a lot of Petnat style things. I think it's mostly, they don't have heavy distribution, but I might have to, uh, I'll show you his name because they, they sound like really cool wines and they're only available on the East Coast. And I've been meaning to try to get out and get to actually i know keck i might have to hit him up too i'm I'm not aware of what he's currently up to i think i, I lost track with him a little bit after he moved out of texas but he's he's awesome yeah yeah and a super nice guy we we, we keep in touch and just he tries to hook me up with random people so i, I love the i love him i haven't met him yet but yeah no hit him up his, his wine sounds super cool and right perfect for pop i think so he's, he's he seems like the type to just like fiddle around for a couple years there and then make like a wine of the year somehow <laughs> um, and bring this bring that style it's just like wine spectator number one he's he's definitely an artist and a smart guy yeah so awesome. you're maxwell park navy yard and shaw like northwest and southeast right is where you're at down there yeah. and then where's pop pop is just northwest it's probably like a mile north of where navy yard is it's by the or where shaw's it's by this uh, music venue called the 930 club cool pop and maxwell just are really different so it's okay if they're kind of close Navy Yard and Shaw, I just wanted two small ones on opposite ends of town. People always ask me if I want to do like, you know, hey, your, your bar's really busy. You want to do like a big bar, like twice the size or like, oh, do you have this like you have this empire of like a couple wine bars, right? You're like weird stuff like that. And I'm like, these are both tiny, like, you know, 40 seat bars that are like a packed in 40 seats. 
And, uh, you know, each one's like a thousand square feet. So like both my bars put together are smaller than most people's bars. And I, I think that like having an energy and having a small bar and like kind of like breaking them up over two sides of town is like what I had in mind. You have some other like restaurant concepts as well. I know you work with, is it Chef Morishita? Is that just at Maxwell and Pop? Do you guys have other collaborations that you're working on? Or She's our corporate chef, so she's just like doing culinary for all of our projects. I also partnered with this chef, Michael Rafiti, who has a 11-teen one-star Michelin called Albi. That's right. So I co-wrote his opening wine list. But Masako has been amazing. She comes from a Kobe, Japan, and she kind of puts like her kind of like a regional take on all the food we do. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll have to get down there soon. I have to hit you up about, I have to go to everywhere. This is what we'll have to do when we come. I'm in Baltimore now. I was in Richmond, Virginia. So yeah, we have a team team member in, in DC, and but I'm not I'm not too far either. So yeah, keep me posted. Happy to, to link up. I love going to Baltimore. Richmond, I was just there. I went to this bakery, Sub Rosa, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, that's like, like famous around the country. Like they're legit. They make legitimate breads. Yeah. Cool. Very good. Cool. Billy, do you have anything else? No, no. Thank you for your time. All we've gone over what we expected, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I'd also say too, if anyone's listening and they ever want to ask questions about a business plan or like raising shares or valuing a company or like kind of how to like you know crack into you know the path that I got into, just feel free to look me up, Brent Kroll, Maxwell Park. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put some like your social media stuff and and things like that, and if anyone wants to. Contact Brian, you can reach out to us directly and we can share contact information and stuff like that. So that'd be awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks, thanks for a lot, Brian. Yeah, thanks for your time. Hopefully you guys are having something good tonight too. My birthday's on Friday, so we'll see what Billy recommends for me. Yeah, hopefully it's not any shitty champagne. It looks like <laughs> it's trying to foreshadow something from the Rhone Valley. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, right. yeah, that's what I'll do. Sarah. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Brent. Talk thanks, soon. Guys. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vent and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.